honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And then our second scripture from the gospel according to Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 13. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed, and I cannot get up and give you anything. But I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us and that you would show us yourself in your word and that you would show us ourselves in your word. Make the book live. Amen. Well, we come to this, our uh, final sermon in our little series within a series on the sealing of the Holy Spirit as it's, uh, as it's called in Ephesians 1.13, or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as it's called elsewhere in Scripture. And I, I generally uh, like to do a little thumbnail sketch review at the beginning of each sermon, sort of to catch anyone up who might have missed the week before, and also to provide a reminder to those who were here the week before, because you might have forgotten because the statistics about what you remember 36 or 48 hours after the sermon are actually quite depressing. They, they, they tell you all about that in seminary, and they tell you how much uh, statistics say that you remember, and they say that's why you can't repeat yourself too much in spite of what your congregation may say to you. But for this week, I'm just going to have to be depressed. And I'm okay with that, because we're leaving for two weeks vacation to South Dakota and Montana, and that's God's country, and that will take the edge off of my depression. So I'm just going to assume that I've done a reasonable job of arguing my case from the scriptures, that the sealing of the Spirit or the baptism of the Spirit is something distinct and different from the work of the Spirit that justifies us by bringing us to saving faith in Christ. And I'm going to presume that most of you, like me, have not experienced this, but perhaps would like to. And so that, that brings about the question, how do you go about obtaining this blessing? How do you go about receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost? Well, the first thing that we must note 
is that when we search the scriptures, there seem to be many different ways in which the Spirit comes down upon various people. And in particular, the book of Acts probably has the most examples and discusses this and shows us by precept and by example um, how all this happens. And in many cases, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon people seems to have come through the laying on of hands. And it has been taught by some in our day that the laying on of hands by someone who has received the baptism of the Holy Spirit is necessary in order for us to obtain this gift today. But I would say that the scripture actually doesn't support that. Uh, it's true that in many cases the scripture was given by the laying on of hands, but in the case of Peter sharing the gospel with Cornelius and his household uh, in Acts chapter 10, there was no laying on of hands. Peter was just sharing the gospel, and while he was doing so, the Spirit fell upon the hearers. And it does seem that this laying on of hands was something that was perhaps unique to the apostles. So, for instance, when we read the story of Philip and the Samaritans um, in Acts chapter 8, he was able to do many mighty deeds among them. He healed people. He cast out demons. I mean, everybody looked at that and went, hey, something really wonderful is here. And he preaches the gospel to these Samaritans with great power, and they are converted, and they are baptized. But the Spirit does not baptize these believers until Peter and John come down from Jerusalem and lay hands on them. We find that in Acts chapter 8 and verse 17. The only possible exception to the norm that the, the giving of the Spirit was an apostolic gift and probably ceased when the, when the last of the apostles died comes in Acts chapter 9. And in Acts chapter 9, we have the story of the artist formerly known as Saul of Tarsus, and he's been drafted into service by Christ. He's been struck down on the road to Damascus, and he has been converted by a sovereign act of God's grace, and he's blinded for three days, and his friends take him by the hand, and they lead him into uh, the place that God has designated in Damascus, and the Lord sends a man, a Christian man named Ananias, who was not an apostle, and he sends him to Paul, for that is his new name now. And Ananias is frightened because Saul, Paul, has not been very nice to the church at all, but he is also faithful. And he lays hands on Paul, and Paul's sight is restored, and the Holy Spirit comes upon Paul. You find this, as I said, in Acts chapter 9. Now, there's no question in my mind that that's exactly what happened. I don't doubt that at all. The question is, what was the function of the laying on of hands in that case? And if you do any digging at all in your Bibles, you discover that the laying on of hands accompanied many different events. When someone was ordained to the office of elder or deacon, hands were laid upon them. We find this in 1 Timothy 5.22 and Acts 6.6. 6. And when we ordain men today, we do the same. We lay hands on them because that's the biblical, that's the apostolic precept and practice. When someone was commissioned to the mission field, hands were laid upon them. We find that in Acts 13 and verse 3. When a blessing was conveyed, 
It was conveyed by the laying on of hands, as Jesus did with the little children in Matthew 19, 13. And most importantly, when people were healed, both by Jesus and by the apostles, very often hands were laid on the sick person. We find examples of this in Luke 13, 13, and Mark 6, 5, and Mark 16, 18, and, and in Acts 28 and verse 8. And in Acts 9 and verse 12, the Lord tells Ananias that Paul has seen a vision of a man named Ananias who, quote, comes and lays hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So it may be that the laying on of hands is to be coordinated with the regaining of his sight and not with the giving of the Spirit in particular. Not only that, we've discussed men through church history like Flavel and Goodwin and Owen and Edwards and Whitfield and Wesley and Christmas Evans and D.L. Moody and we could add others. Men like R.A. Torrey and A.W. Tozer to that list. None of those people received the gift of the Holy Spirit that they received by the laying on of hands. God can, of course, do whatever he wants, but the laying on of hands to grant the Spirit's baptism automatically seems to me to have been an apostolic gift. So if we're going to experience this for ourselves, we don't need to bring in a specialist, is what I'm saying. We might also notice that in the book of Acts, we don't see anyone seeking or praying for the gift of the Holy Spirit. He just comes, for the most part, often very quickly after the person believes savingly on Jesus. I would argue that the Samaritan believers are an important exception to that, and the breaking of that pattern helps establish that the pattern is an ironclad. Everyone involved with the Samaritan situation seems to have recognized that there was some deficiency in their experience, which was a little bit concerning, and that's why the apostles were sent for, so that they could lay hands on them and receive the Holy Spirit. And you can almost see the messengers arriving in Jerusalem and telling the apostles, you know, Philip did many miracles in Samaria, and the Samaritans believed on Jesus, and Philip baptized them, but they haven't received the Holy Spirit, please come and correct the situation. So there was a kind of a seeking there, perhaps, but everywhere else the Spirit seems to just come when he chooses. And his presence and gifting seem widespread. Indeed, they seem almost universal in the early church. And when you pick up the New Testament letters, too, the baptism of the Holy Spirit seems to have been presumed as an event that happened to most of the readers. We find this, of course, in our starting point for all this in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, uh, where it says you were sealed. After you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, the promise, the down payment of your redemption. And we can look at the letter of 1 Peter, and we can see that as well, can't we? That was a, supposed to be our call to worship. Um, here are these believers who Peter writes to. These people are Gentiles. They're in these churches in what is today Turkey. They never knew Jesus in the flesh. And yet, how does Peter describe them? He says, even though you haven't seen him, you love him and you believe in him, and on account of that, you rejoice with a joy 
that is so overwhelming that you can't even speak about it. If you would try to speak about your joy in Jesus, if you would try to express it verbally, the words would catch in your throat and you would melt into tears and you would just repeat over and over again. There there just aren't words to describe it. It's beyond words. Talk to somebody this week who had had this experience and that's exactly what happened to her when she was trying to convey it. Now, that's not the normal Christian experience today. But it was in the early church. And it was widespread. And Peter presumes it as the norm for those he is writing to in his letter, 1 Peter. Indeed, in all of the epistles where this issue is taken up, the writer seems to presuppose that it is something the original readers would have experienced. And so there's no need to instruct them on how to go about seeking it. You see, what we call revival in the modern church is really just a return to the norms of the New Testament church. So the explanation for the lack of instruction in most of the New Testament to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit must surely lie in the fact that it was so widespread that it wasn't necessary to say anything about it. It just was taken for granted. I mean, Paul didn't tell them to seek to eat breakfast either. He just took it for granted that they were going to eat breakfast. And so there was no instruction about that either. But our Lord Jesus does say something about it. And he anticipated our need and our poverty and our ignorance, graciously so. And of course, we find that in that passage in Luke 11. It's interesting, is it not, that these words of Jesus are preserved in two different sermons. They are here in Luke 11 in the form of a discreet teaching on prayer, and they're also part of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Now, that ought not alarm us that Jesus, like any other preacher, reused and sometimes reshaped his material for his preaching, depending on the needs of the moment, the needs of the audience and what was going on. In Luke, the whole point is to encourage the believer, and he is only addressing believers there because only believers have been given the right by God, by adoption, to call God Father. And so he's encouraging the believer to ask and to keep asking for the Holy Spirit. And he says the reason you ought to do that is because God gives good gifts to his children. In the Matthew version, we're told to persist in prayer for good things because God gives good gifts to his children. So in Luke, it's nag God because he'll give you the Holy Spirit. And in Matthew, it's nag God because he'll give you good things. Now, it is extremely telling to me that in 30 years of pastoral ministry, I have never heard a sermon on Luke chapter 11, but I have heard many sermons on Matthew 6. And until today, I've never preached a sermon on Luke 11 myself, 
but I've preached on Matthew 6 many times. And indeed, I don't know if you can relate to this or not. Maybe it's just I'm worse than you. I'm particularly depraved. But when I would read Luke 11, where you're like, ask, seek, knock, and you're like, yeah, I know what's coming next. God's going to take care of me and give me good things, you know, and the door will be open to you. And if you're evil and you can give good gifts to your children, how much more will God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And it'd be like, huh. Eh. Thanks, God. I guess. You know, I, I, I love the passage where you give me the stuff I ask for, but here you're going to give me the Holy Spirit. And, and it kind of just, my reaction, it kind of reminded me of the time when I was in elementary school and I went to my parents and I said, Mom and Dad, I'm interested in music. I'd like to learn how to play guitar. Will you buy me a guitar and get me some lessons? And they said, No. I said, okay. And then they borrowed a flute from a friend and they handed me the flute and they said, here, since you're interested in music, here's a flute. Now you can join the school orchestra and learn to play the flute. I didn't want to learn to play the flute. I wanted to learn to play the guitar. And so, of course, being a fifth grader or a fourth grader, whatever it was, that experiment in flutology lasted about a month and I quit. And I said, you can give the, the flute back. I don't want to learn how to play the flute. And later on, I asked my parents again, Mom and Dad, would you get me a guitar? And again, they said, no. And when I said, why not? Their answer was, because you won't stick with it. Well, how do you know that? Well, because you didn't stick with the flute. <laughs> my parent, I could have been a brilliant musician. <laughs> if it wasn't for that flute. And Luke 11 felt a little bit to me like when I would read it, like going to God in prayer for a guitar and having God say, here's your flute, right? We like Matthew 6 because we can all identify going to God for things that we really feel the need of, for a reliable car that we can afford, or, or a good job when we graduate, or for the healing of our marriage when it's really on the rocks, or for a bigger house when we're just busting at the seams, or for his intervention with our kids when they're making bad decisions and we don't seem to be able to influence them anymore. We can imagine going to God over and over again and begging him very earnestly to heal our cancer. But we have a much harder time envisioning a scenario where we would go to God over and over again and beg him for the fullness of the Holy Spirit like we would for healing from cancer. And yet Jesus in his wisdom advises us to do exactly that. And we have by and large ignored his advice. And a weak, empty, powerless church that's driven to adopt principles of marketing and therapy and entertainment in a desperate attempt to seem relevant to the world is the result. If the best way to understand revival is to see it as the baptism of the Spirit poured out on a large number of people in a short period of time, then it should come as no surprise 
that almost every revival was triggered by a small group of people praying exactly the way that Jesus describes, often for an extended period of time. Now, a number of weeks ago, I mentioned uh, the revival on the Isle of Lewis in the Hebrides in Scotland. And and let me just read a, a portion of that story to you. Beginning in November 1949, two sisters, Peggy and Christine Smith, 84 and 82 years old, Peggy completely blind, and Christine bent over with arthritis, were burdened due to the spiritually depressed state in their Barvis Village Church. And they sensed the Lord speaking to them, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. That's Isaiah 44 and verse 3. And this led them to pray in their small cottage two to three nights per week from 10 p.m. till 3 a.m. After several weeks of praying like this, Peggy had a vision of her church being crowded with young people and an unknown minister preaching from the pulpit. Peggy then sent for their minister, Reverend James Murray Mackay. And she told him they sensed the Lord was going to send a revival and that he must get his church leaders and spend every Tuesday and Friday night in prayer and they would pray simultaneously in their cottage. Mackay respected the sister's spiritual judgment and the call to pray was made. There was also a group of pastors in the region that met to discuss the spiritual declension on the island, and together they composed a resolution to be read on a certain Sunday in all the free churches in Scotland. It was an appeal for all believers to, quote, view with concern the barrenness of the parishes so that they would, quote, turn again unto the Lord whom we have so grieved with our waywardness and iniquities. It also involved asking the people to pray that the villages would be, quote, visited with a spirit of repentance. Many of the believers in the Hebrides immediately went to their knees, petitioning God to visit the islands. The announcement was also placed in two newspapers, the Stornoway Gazette and the West Coast Advisor on December 9th, 1949. Following that proclamation, two times per week, Peggy and Christine Smith prayed in their cottage from 10 p.m. till 3 a.m., while the ministers and others prayed in a barn-like structure in other locations. And they prayed this way for weeks. Prayer was conducted in unheated buildings in the middle of winter. That was a sign of desperation. People all over the islands had a sense that God was telling them to ask me for revival. This was a divinely orchestrated movement to petition God for revival. After several weeks of praying like that, one evening while the minister and the church leaders, including both men and women, were praying in a barn, a young deacon read from Psalm 24, 3 through 5, Who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God of his salvation." When he closed his Bibles, he looked at the minister and the others and said, it seems to me to be so much humbug to be praying as we are praying and to be waiting as we are waiting if we ourselves are not rightly related to God. And then he prayed, God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? 
Immediately at around 3 a.m., the presence of God gripped every person present. It wasn't only them that sensed this. The entire village and the larger surrounding area sensed that same awareness of God. And the following day, everyone was absorbed by the reality of eternal things. That group of intercessors left the barn at that very early hour and found men and women kneeling along the crossroads, crying out to God for mercy. Every every home had lights on in it, and no one could sleep with the awareness of God being so overwhelming. 3 a.m., all of a sudden people are out in the streets praying in December, January. The lights are on in every cottage and people are praying. And this brings up another issue that I think is vital. If we would experience the fullness of the Spirit's power in our own lives, we must keep short accounts with our sin and we must hate our sin because it keeps God from giving us beautiful gifts. This has been really brought home to me in the past few weeks. I've been asking God for this gift, for this experience, and God has been rubbing my nose in things that I've been at ease with for years. I was at the gym on the treadmill on Monday and he expressed his displeasure at something I was doing that offended him and I had this kind of shocked reaction. I was like, you mean you really want me to totally stop that? Yes, he said. And he brought a verse of scripture to mind. Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, I wouldn't have defended what I was doing as a good thing or even a harmless thing if you'd asked me about it, but my conscience was at ease with it because it seemed small and also inevitable. And here's God telling me that it's neither small nor inevitable. And so I was like, okay, I'm willing to try, but I'm kind of going to need your help because stopping this seems a whole lot like stopping breathing. I'm not sure what to do about that. And I find myself, more often than not, perhaps at the point now where I cannot imagine any sin being so sweet to me that I would prefer it to the sealing of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean I can just walk away from all my sins and instantly be free. Some of them are very deeply ingrained and virtually automatic, but I sincerely find myself wanting to be rid of all of them. And I wasn't aware of it until just this week, but I didn't feel that way before. And at some level, I was fine with a certain level of sin in my life. Perhaps you can relate. Perhaps you're just like me in your own way. There's something in there that's been there since you can remember, decades. And you just say, well, that's just how it is. I guess this is just how I am. And God says, well, that is how you are, but it's not how you ought to be. So how about you and I get serious about it and you seek my power to rid you of it? Some of these things I even justified as unfortunate, but a completely reasonable response to the painful effect of the sins that others in my life have committed against me. Sort of a well, I wouldn't have to respond with B if that person hadn't done A. 
And for me, those are the hardest sins to let go of because I grew up with an ethic that says, you never throw the first punch. You never throw the punch that starts the fight, but you make sure, you make darn sure you throw the punch that ends the fight. Because otherwise you're a weakling. You're a failure as a man. You're pathetic and contemptible. So you make sure you get that last lick in good and it's a knockout blow. It's becoming obvious to me that I might have to find a new way to be if I want this second blessing of the fullness of the Spirit of God. Maybe I should become more like my Lord Jesus who endured punches he did not deserve and yet did not strike back. And he was no weakling. He was no failure as a man. He was in no way, shape, or form pathetic and contemptible. He was and is the strongest, most noble, most dignified man who ever existed. Maybe I should try being like him. Maybe you should too. Let me close with just one more story from the Lewis Revival. As told by the evangelist who led the revival, Duncan Campbell. And we'll finish here. I think that the mo- one of the most outstanding things that happened that I believe will go down in history as long as revival is mentioned, writes Campbell, was in the parish of Arnall. Now, I regret to say that here I was bitterly opposed by a certain section of the Christian church, opposed by ministers who were born again without question. These were God-fearing men. But for some reason or other, they came to believe that I wasn't sound in my doctrine because I preached the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I proclaimed a Savior who could deliver from sin, glorious emancipation. And they got it into their minds that I was teaching absolute perfection or sinless perfection, a thing that I never did nor could I ever believe in. But these dear men somehow believed it of me. And of course, not one of them ever listened to me. They listened to stories brought to them. And it was arranged that there would be a special effort made to oppose me. And several ministers were brought from the mainland to this particular parish to conduct mission meetings opposing, quote, Campbell and his revival. Well, they came. And they were so successful in their opposition that very few people from this particular community came near any of my meetings. It is true that the church was crowded. It is true that people were standing outside that couldn't get in. But these were people who came from neighboring parishes, and they were brought by coaches and cars and what have you. But there were very few from this particular village. So one night, the elders came to me and said, Mr. Campbell, there is only one thing that we can do. We must give ourselves to prayer. Prayer changes things. And I told him, well, you know, I am very willing for that. Where shall we meet? Oh, he said there is a farmer, and he is very willing to place his farmhouse at our disposal. It was winter, and the church was cold, and there was no heating in it. The people believed a crowded church would provide its own heat, but we wanted a warmer spot, and the farmer was approached. Now, the farmer wasn't a Christian, nor was his wife, but they were God-fearing. Now let me explain to you that you can be God-fearing and know nothing of salvation. There are thousands of people in Upper Scotland who are God-fearing. They have family worship morning and evening. They would never dream of going out to work in the morning without reading a chapter of the Bible and getting down on their knees to ask God to have mercy on them and the family. The man may have been 
under the influence of alcohol the night before. He may not darken the door of a church, but he would not dream of going out to work without reading the Bible. That is why I believe that the average unsaved person in the Hebrides has far greater knowledge of the Word of God than the average Christian anywhere else. I think I can say that. It is because of this custom of family worship. Well, this man had that. He wasn't a Christian, but he was a God-fearing man. So we gathered at his house, and I would say there were about 30 of us, including five ministers of the Church of Scotland. And these men had burdens, longings to see God move in revival. And while we were praying, and I think, and I'm sorry, and oh, the going was hard. At least I felt it was hard. And it came between midnight and one o'clock in the morning that I turned to this blacksmith whom I have already returned to, referred to. And I, oh, he was a prince of the parish. And I said to him, John, I feel that God would have me to call upon you to pray. Up until then, he was silent. And that dear man began. And he must have prayed for about half an hour. He paused for a second or so. Then looking up towards the heavens, he cried, God, do you know that your honor is at stake? You promised to pour water on the thirsty and floods on the dry ground. And God, you are not doing it? Now, my dear people, could we pray like that? Ah, but here was a man who could. And then he went on to say, there are five ministers in this meeting, and I don't know where one of them stands in your presence, not even Mr. Campbell, but if I know anything at all about my own poor heart, I think I can say, and I think that you know that I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty to see the devil defeated in this parish. I'm thirsty to see this community gripped as you gripped Barvis. I'm longing for revival, and God, you're not doing it. I am thirsty, and you, poured water, you promised to pour water on me. And after a pause, he cried, God, I now take it upon myself to challenge you to fulfill your covenant engagement. Now it was nearing two o'clock in the morning. And what happened after he prayed? The house shook. A jug on the sideboard fell onto the floor and broke. The minister beside me said, an earth tremor? And I said, yes. But I had my own thoughts. My mind went back to Acts chapter 4. When they prayed, the place was shaken. And I pronounced the benediction and left the house. And what did I see? I saw the whole community alive. Men carrying chairs, women carrying stools and asking, is there room for us in the churches? I don't believe there was a single house in the village that that wasn't shaken by God. And the Arnold revival broke out. And oh, what a sweeping revival. I don't believe there was a single house in that village that wasn't shaken by God. I went into another farmhouse. I was thirsty, I was tired, I needed something to drink. I went in to ask for a drink of milk and I found nine women in the children crying in the kitchen crying to God for mercy. Nine of them. Now people, that's revival. That is God at work. Miracles and supernatural happenings beyond human explanation. It's God. And I'm fully persuaded, dear people, that unless we see something like this happening, the average man will stagger back from our efforts, our conferences, our conventions, our crusades. They will stagger back disappointed, disillusioned, and despairing. But oh, if something happens that demonstrates God from nothing 
to people coming with stools and chairs wanting to get into the church at two in the morning. That's gone. If you are at all concerned about the state of the church and the state of the nation, we simply must have a revival. The things that are happening all around us are an indication of what's in our hearts as a people. And we must have new hearts. And God must do it. So let's just ask him to. And let's keep on asking him to. Until he does. Amen. And amen.